Our response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. But how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how the professionals in those industries are contributing towards our collective effort to reach net zero and a more sustainable and prosperous future. Material Change, Resourcing Net Zero. Hello and welcome to Materials Change, Resourcing Net Zero, an IOM3 and Content with Purpose podcast series exploring the essential role of the materials, minerals and mining communities in addressing the climate crisis and achieving net zero targets. I'm Helen Cherisky. Now, often it seems that to the consumer, stuff just appears in the shops. It's just sort of magicked into existence by the wave of a credit card. And we know that's not true. There's obviously a huge story for every single component that reaches the user. You know, that material had to come from somewhere, it had to be manufactured and processed, it had to be converted into that part and assembled, and of course we know now it really should be recycled. So a lot of time, effort and energy goes into all of that. So this week we're putting the material cycle into the spotlight. How important is it on our way to net zero and what are the easy wins and the hard battles? And as always, we have two fabulous guests to help us answer all of these questions. Uh, so let's meet the first one. Um, and he is Neil Glover. He's the current IOM3 president, just coming to the end of his two-year term as we record this. So overseeing a lot of this stuff. So Neil, um, from over the two years that you've been uh, the president of, of IOM3, what, what changes have you seen in sort of awareness and appreciation of these issues? Like what's happened over the past two years? I think the awareness has has continue to grow over the last two years of the real importance of, of materials to the energy transition and to decarbonisation, and particularly perhaps a broadening of that awareness. I think there was always a focus on new materials technology and what that could do for decarbonisation, but I think now people have realised the importance across the whole of the materials cycle, from raw materials extraction and processing and component manufacturing and design right the way through to, as you said a moment ago, end of life and recycling and reuse. So I think that kind of that holistic importance of thinking about the whole life cycle, designing products, developing materials to suit that whole life cycle, I think the emphasis on that has really increased. And when it comes to the materials cycle, what, what are the sort of big changes to the supply chain and the way of thinking about it that are coming along? Because it feels like with a lot of this stuff, we're kind of at the start of a steep curve. What are the really big changes that are perhaps coming down the pipe or perhaps just getting started? I think um, one of the changes is the the changing demands that we see for different raw materials or different material types. If we look particularly to um, renewable energy and decarbonisation, then the demand for electrification starts to introduce a whole new palette of materials. And the demand for those materials is increasing incredibly rapidly. So things like lithium for lithium-ion batteries, cobalt for cathodes in batteries, rare earths for magnetics... The, the demand for those materials is increasing very rapidly and is predicted to continue to increase. And so there will very much be pressure on those supply chains and pressure, therefore, to deal with those materials at end of life and recover the materials and keep them in the value chain. 
Well, I mean, it's something that I am very, very concerned about is the recycling side of this. And it is great to hear it's being discussed much more. So we'll come back to that. But let's meet our second guest today. Uh, and that is Neil Whitten, who's the Innovation Lead um, Advanced Materials at Innovate UK. So, um, Neil, so you're both Neil. So, so I don't know how I'm going to distinguish between you. Um, um, Neil W. So what role does Innovate UK play in all of this? And what's your particular focus on the day-to-day basis? Okay. Uh, thanks, Helen. Uh, my- yeah, I'm Innovation Lead for Advanced Materials, and I sit in the, the Manufacturing and Materials uh, sector team at Innovate UK. So for those who don't know, Innovate UK is, is the UK's innovation agency. We're a, a non-departmental public body, and we, we're basically funded by Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy to, to fund business growth. Um, we're the only part of UKRI that directly funds business growth. So um, my role really is is engaging with uh, with stakeholders across the piece. You know, whether that be government, academia, RTOs, NGOs, um, business itself, um, supporting UK advanced materials businesses wherever I can, and then importantly, I guess, identifying market failures that hinder hinder that business growth. Um, you know, really overcoming those barriers and arguing the case for for interventions. Um, uh, you know, my, my background is material science, and I've spent 35 years in, in industry and in materials industries before I joined Innovate UK. So I've kind of seen it from both sides of the fence. And uh, I think um, you know, Innovate UK is trying very hard um, to, to focus on the, the key challenges for the future, one of which is you know, the big domain of net zero. Um, but then there's also you know, healthy living and, and agriculture and land use. Uh, and then, and, and finally, the um, the area of digital and development, deployment of technologies, and those are the three kind of demands that that shape our interventions over the next few years. It, it does feel as though very much all the problems have arrived all at the same time, which might, they're, they're all connected. So maybe that's appropriate. I'm interested in what you had to say about um, identifying failures in the current system. Could you tell us a little bit about the sorts of failures that you identify and how easy they are to fix? Yeah, I mean, I think that the one that you know, I guess they're not easy to fix. I mean, that's the first thing to see. I, I, they're definitely not easy to fix. If they were easy to fix, they would have been fixed. Um, I, I think the the main challenge is, you know, around materials, particularly, is the transition. We're we're absolutely fantastic at, at, the, at the material science. We we punch well above our weight in material science, and you know, whatever way you measure that, we, we're 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 kind of world class. Um, but that's that's not really going to give us the economic growth that we need. What we need is to transition those materials into industry and into commercial application uh, for the for the benefit of the UK. And I think that's that for me is is the biggest single kind of failure, if you like. We still struggle with that um, because materials development um, from from the laboratory into you know the scale that uh, that the major companies need to use um, is takes such a long time. And uh, an investment that doesn't have the patience for that. So it's, um, you know, that's one of the key areas that, that we focus on. Material change, resourcing net zero. This episode is sponsored by Bristol Composites Institute at the University of Bristol and British Glass. Bristol Composites Institute is a world leader in composites research and education, combining fundamental science with industrial links. As the representative body for the UK glass industry, British Glass supports the sector to secure a thriving and sustainable future. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, materialchange.iom3.org. Material Change, 
resourcing net zero. And do you see do you see a path to to plug in that gap? Because it is, I mean, like you say, there's, the, there are different things happen on different timescales and there is a huge amount of urgency now, but we sort of also risk people getting frustrated because it looks like things aren't happening. And yet, as you say, these are huge industries with a lot of embedded infrastructure that you can't just change overnight. Do you, do you, do you ever worry about the sort of the, the, the frustration building up to the point where people almost give up on this? Um, I, I worry about a lot of things. Um, I, I think the, the the challenge with it is, you know, the, the the large companies often will say they don't know what's going on in the universities. The universities will often say they don't know what the large companies want and need. Um, and that, you know, I've been I've been working for forty years, and that's been going since the day I started work, and still continues. You know, I think there's a there is a, a, a real um, challenge there to to, to bring business and, and academia and the, the, the science and the user need together much more. Um, do I worry that people get frustrated to the point where it'll it'll stop? Uh, I don't think so. I don't. I, I think there's there are successes. It's not a completely you know. I, I may be sounding a little negative about it. I think you know. I think we're doing an awful lot of great <laughs> stuff towards the net zero um, transition. And the but the. The, the, the challenge with it is there's an awful lot more to do still, you know. So we're doing a lot of great stuff, but when you look around the piece, there are always more things to do. And uh, understanding what's the important thing is uh, is I, I think one of the areas I'm, I I do worry a bit more about. Um, do we do we have a really clear vision of of what the important areas and materials development are? Um, so that's 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 the piece I worry about. And I'm interested, um, Neil G. You said something. You said you were talking about, you know, the new, the, the, the sort of balance of materials that we want is changing. And I was wondering how much that offers opportunities. You know, thinking about improving the materials cycle, how much, how much easier is it to do it if you've effectively got to build it? I mean, is it is there an advantage here in the case that we can use the scale up for some of these newer materials as as you can build it up from scratch and maybe you can do it right this time. You know, right for the current moment, is, is is that opportunity there, or is it not as simple as that? I think there is certainly opportunity in there. When we're in the stage of designing and developing new systems, then there's opportunity to design those new systems correctly so that they enable that uh, frugality of resources or circularity of resources. It's it's generally too late when you have a, a product that's already out there in service to start to think about how you might service it, how you might repair it, how you might disassemble it and then and then recycle or reprocess parts at end of life it really needs to be thought of at the design stage so you can make sure that um that that things are accessible and can easily be dismantled and so on and that the materials that are developed are are suitable for recycling so if we're if we're in the process of electrification of transport systems electrification of aerospace and so on then there's an opportunity to design that in right from the beginning and to think through that whole life cycle it doesn't make the technical challenge of doing it easier, I guess, but it means it can at least be considered at the right point. And it's really important that that's done. And then there's also a business opportunity in there for um, the UK and for others to, to, to enter into that market, to develop the technologies, to develop the novel recycling or refurbishment technologies that will enable those products to be, um, to be sustainable. And there's an opportunity to get in early and, and establish that economic position. 
And are there any, for both of you, are there any particularly good examples? Because I think with a lot of these things, it's very easy to talk about, you know, kind of abstract concepts of we need to do these things in general. Have either of you got any, ex- like, you know, examples you have seen of companies or of particular products uh, or of, you know, a particular material where they're really doing well on this, like they're setting an example for everyone else. And you can kind of use those as a case study to say, well, you know, they tried this and it worked. Is there, are there any, are there any, are there already any successes like that, that we could learn from? Uh, perhaps Neil G first. I mean, there are some great examples of, um, of circularity and, and sort of preservation of resources out there in established material classes. So in, in my area of aerospace, um, within aerospace alloys and specialty alloys or super alloys or, or high-performance titanium alloys, many of those materials are, are closed-loop reverted. So manufacturing wastes and end-of-life wastes are returned back to the melter and the value is preserved and the the um, embodied energy and the embodied carbon is, is therefore minimised through being able to go back in at the highest possible point of the processing cycle. And there are great examples of things like the use of scarce elements like rhenium in, in high-performance, high-temperature alloys, where the, the demand for what's a, a very scarce and expensive material has been much reduced by the, the frugality through processing and through end-of-life recovery of, of that element. Um, it's that kind of philosophy then that can be transferred onto the, the new technologies. And I think we can see that thinking developing in, in, in new sectors, but the, the technologies in some cases need to be developed. So there are good examples of work being done uh, perhaps on, on battery recycling technology um, and on automated disassembly and separation and some great work being done on magnet materials and recovery and recycling of rare earth elements, both in the UK and internationally. Okay, so uh, Neil W, how about examples from you? Are there any particular thing, you know, case studies that are already out there that we can learn from you know, as a model for the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't do anything as exciting as, as Rolls-Royce engines and things, but I, I, I think a couple of areas, I, and it's not just about, you know, the resource efficiency, it, it may be also about, you know, slightly different business models um, to, to that approach. And we, we I mean, there are a myriad of SMEs that we fund and support projects in this area. So but a couple that immediately come to mind, you know, in the area of packaging and, and particularly, you know, kind of drinks at festivals and, and, and events and stuff like that, there's there's certainly, um, you know, a couple of, of really innovative, hardworking, very small companies, um, you know, trying to, uh, to, to change that model completely so that, you know, you, you have returnable cups and returnable systems um, some of them, you know, requiring deposit schemes. Some of them not, uh, using slightly different incentives. Uh, and the other area that I would that I would um, pick on is probably, um, or the other example I would give is is a company called River Simple, who are developing a kind of hydrogen-based car. And that car is, you know, again a different value model. It's it's to be it's to be rented, leased, whatever you want to call it, um, rather than owned. And and I think those kind of models, um, I think. You know, also drive that resource efficiency um, just by a slightly different route. It's not necessarily just about using the material; it's about also how you employ the use of the material uh, at the end. Yeah, I think incentive. I mean, business models are interesting, aren't they? Because there's it's been assumed that we have this one way business model, but as you say, the business of renting uh, and subscriptions and all of that changes the incentives completely. You know, a traditional model of kind of economic growth is based on 
increasing material demand. So you know we can only grow and become you know um, uh, more productive as a nation if we if we use more and more materials and more and more stuff is produced and sold and um, and we need to you know I think ultimately we need to cut that we need to decouple that and. Uh, while we're doing that, we need to you know maintain resilience. We need to maintain productivity and competitiveness, um, and I think that's the real challenge. A lot of a lot of the work is at the kind of supply side. Um, the more difficult area, I think, for me is how to decouple the, the the kind of mindset that our personal growth is depending on us owning more stuff, whatever that stuff is, um, which then drives that material demand. Um, and I think breaking that link is is very difficult. But there are definitely, you know, there's activities uh, Neil mentioned around kind of rare earths and stuff, and some of that is based on changes in in, in approaches in electronics, in vehicles, uh, in textiles. There's there's work going on to to drive circularity. So I think there's there's a lot of activity in those areas, but there are still some big kind of cultural levers that need to be need to be moved for it to to really take. Um, take hold if you like but it's interesting isn't it because those cultural levers are actually relatively new you know if you go back a hundred years people didn't have the luxury of just throwing stuff away i mean i the any older listeners may remember a magazine called materials recycling weekly that i wrote my first ever paid article for when i was 17 and uh, what i was writing about was a, a glass bottle return scheme and they headlined it new recycling scheme and it's just that the people who were doing it had never stopped doing it the first time around. You know, they'd just been doing it since 1930 because that was a system in that country. And and everyone had sort of forgotten that that was an automatic thing, that people were careful with their materials because it, they were so valuable. Um, and it's only taken a few decades. You know, it's relatively recent, this, this idea of this consumer society where it's considered to be a one-way pipe is actually very new in human history. I think that takes us right back to the start of the conversation because you know you were you were asking about um, about a similar kind of area, and I think you know if I go back to my start of my working life, probably 40, 50 years ago now, but it's forty years, not that old. Um, it was you know recycling was was discussed, but it was you know really kind of embryonic um, as an industry. It's much more developed now, but actually, in the last you know the last five to ten years, the whole aspect of circularity has become much more of a uh, much more uh, broadly understood. And I think recycling, even as part of circularity, is is probably the least best option. So you know we, we we're much more aware of the you know extension of life, the ability to to remanufacture and refurbish. Um, to to extend material life rather than getting again to that point of um, using more energy to 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 recycle the material at its end of life. It's valuable. It's useful. It's needed, but it's it's really the last. It should be the last option. Yeah, it's a very good point. So Neil G, I'm interested in um, who takes responsibility for this because you know I think a lot of in the past, and we've certainly seen this with with recycling and reuse, as as the other Neil was describing, is that it was always somebody else's problem. Right? Somebody else hasn't done this, therefore I can't do my bit. Somebody else isn't doing this, therefore I can't do this thing. You know, are we seeing are we seeing a shift in like taking on responsibility? Because the problem with the a material cycle is that it passes through by definition, it passes through lots of different hands, right? Ownership continues to change. And yet what we're talking about is a collective responsibility 
so someone's got to kind of keep track, right? Who takes, how do we organize, you know, taking responsibility for this actually happening? Yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because there's a whole system problem that involves people right the way through the chain from the the manufacturers and, the, and their supply chain right the way through to the end user. I think the business models that we talked about earlier are, are in some way central to that. If, if we can in, encourage business models where the manufactured article um, remains in the, the, the property of the, the equipment owner and is in some way leased or seen as a service, then that, that enables both the, the physical retention of that article and its return at end of life, but it also retains the, the detail of the knowledge of the ownership and the composition and the duty and the history of that part, which then enables that return. So the kind of increasing tendency towards those business models is one key enabler. And then there are also some legislative levers that can be can be enacted, whether it's uh, around recycled content, although as, as Neil has just rightly said, recycling isn't necessarily always the, the perfect answer to all of these problems, or whether it's to do with rules of origin, which can also drive those, those same kind of uh, desire to keep stuff in circulation, to maintain it within the, uh, the geographic uh, region. Um, and then there's also a kind of greater societal awareness and behavioral uh, patterns so that people are, are thinking about their behavior as consumers and thinking about what they buy and how often do they need to renew their goods and would they prefer to, to buy something which is maybe um, upgradable or renewable rather than something which needs to be replaced every few years. Well, it's this concept of quality, isn't it, that people assume that the new material must be higher quality. Mm-hmm by default and that maybe used to be true but perhaps is not quite as certainly with polymers it was always seen that the recycled product was sort of second class right and and that's a we we don't have to have that assumption i mean with metals it certainly doesn't matter right no exactly i mean that that shouldn't be an assumption and and isn't true is it i mean as you said with metals uh, many of the metals in service are are essentially infinitely recyclable and their quality after reuse is is exactly the same as it would be from a from a, a primary melt, um, so there is no reason to make that assumption, and that's you know equally true of, of glass as it is of, of metals. So we should break that assumption. Um, a part of that's about education, I, I guess. Part of it's about information. Um, I think the whole piece about information and communication from scientists and engineers to the public and the consumer about the importance of what they do. Is true across the whole of engineering, and it's true for materials, minerals, and mining. Um, and it's important that the the public recognise the value of what the industry can do to deliver solutions, as well as seeing industry as as, as a problem when it comes to decarbonisation. Well, people basically, the part of the problem is that if you ask someone to draw a cartoon of what they associate with industry, it will be a chimney. Mm-hmm. fundamentally right that's the, and i guess shifting that you know that that test of you know give a load of people a crayon and a piece of paper and say draw what th- you think c- what comes to mind when you think of this and, and that is the problem that industry is tarred with this brush for good reason you could say but but that needs to shift now i there's something there's a sort of there's these two conflicting paths perhaps i'm interested in, in whether you think they're both of you think they're conflicting or not which is There's the question of advanced materials, you know, so very carefully engineered, you know, nanostructures, layering, very subtle engineering innovations in order to make something do a job better. 
But then potentially those same innovations might make that thing harder to recycle because it's not a simple product. It's not just a sheet of aluminium anymore. It's now this complicated layered composite. You know, it's difficult. And so I was just wondering how both of you see those that first of all, that demand for advanced materials that may be lighter and better but are inevitably more complex against perhaps the desire if you want to reuse things or, you know, if, if you want to have multiple uses, whatever that is, you sort of want things to be simpler because then they're standardized and then you know what you're dealing with. Is that a conflict or am I just making that up? Neil, Neil W. first. I, I, don't, I don't know that it's a conflict. I'm sure it is in some areas. I mean, the, one, the, the, the area of advanced materials that comes to my mind that, that probably isn't a conflict in that respect is is the area of metamaterials where you're talking about actually structuring a monolithic material and structuring its surfaces and to, to change its behavior, whether that be electromagnetic, acoustic, optical, whatever. Um, so you can do more with less in that respect and perhaps go the other, the other way, the other direction. You, know, you, re, you make it more recyclable as well as being more efficient. Um, but you know there there are challenges, whether it be regulatory, whether it be standards, whether it be you know again the the the, the industry receptiveness of some of those technologies. I think that, that there are challenges there, but it's not necessarily one. It's not necessarily a, a, a total conflict. I think advanced materials can bring an, an awful lot to uh, to the party in that. So metamaterials in in, in those kind of high tech engineering aspects, but you know I think in uh, in in the area of you know, simply polymer packaging, plastic packaging. There's there's an awful lot of work going on around, again, structuring materials to be, um, to be to, to to have the same kind of oxygen transmission behavior, um, or, or um, to be able to protect the contents, but without multi layer structures that that are very difficult to recycle. So I think it's it's it, for me it's not a conflict. I think advanced materials can bring a lot to that. And Neil G, do you have a comment on the advanced materials? Yeah, I, I think I agree. It's not necessarily a conflict, but it is a an additional factor that you need to bear in mind. If you if you are developing advanced materials or material systems, which you're developing to give a performance benefit, and that requires you to go for a complex structure or a complex composition, you need to be thinking about how does this pay back in terms of sustainability and how how might it be recycled and recovered? at end of life and what it brings in the the aspect of being able to do a thorough and, and fact-based life cycle analysis so if you are investing more energy and more complexity into the material if perhaps you're using scarce materials perhaps you're making end of life recovery more difficult does that truly pay back across the whole life cycle and it you know it may well do and it may well be that that's the right thing to do and then you do have to invest a little bit more energy and time in the reprocessing but it, it's right to think about it up front. But it's not necessarily the case, as Neil has said, that, that more advanced materials are more difficult to, to deal with in a circular manner. In fact, when you're designing a new material, you may well be able to design it so that it is suitable for, for recycling processes as part of that consideration. So you know, a, simple, a simple example, if you're designing an alloy, you may well be able to, to think about a compositional point how you make that recyclable, how you make it perhaps recyclable in common with other alloys that are out there. So you can enable um, recycling and circularity as one of the design inputs to the material. But there are, there are clearly examples of where 
complex material structures are giving us end of life problems and you know polymer composite materials might be one example where it's difficult to separate resins from fibers and to be able to process them at end of life and that clearly is an issue and it's an area where lots of work is is being focused now into how can that be effectively done and how much of this is a sort of you like i mentioned in what we what capability we have in the uk and you know because the materials is a, is a global thing. Certainly when you're acquiring new materials, I mean, we, we generate very little in this country specifically of, of the materials we use because we just don't have the geology or the space or, you know, we, that, that is not accessible to us. But when, you, when you're thinking about it as a material cycle where things go round and round, how much of that capability, how are we doing in the UK at having the capability all the way round by ourselves? Or are we going to kind of specialise in some bits more than some others um neil w perhaps first yeah i i I think inevitably we have to specialize i don't think we can we can possibly do everything in every area so there's 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 an inevitable you know specialization and i think one of the challenges with that is we don't you know at least from my viewpoint um it's not clear to say what what we should be specializing in and i think that's that's part of the the challenge you know there's no real a holistic or unified vision across the materials piece to say both what kinds of materials, what areas of materials, and then what what parts of the supply chain. Um, you know, through that through that entire kind of um, value chain for the material, do we want to be? Um, do we want to have in the UK and have sovereign capability in? Um, I think that's a real uh, a real. You asked me what what I worried about. That's one of the things I worry about too. Um, so, you know, I think that we, we, I think, are, you know, we're leading in a lot of areas. I think we, you know, we're, again, punching above our weight and we have a huge number of, you know, very innovative SMEs working around the kind of recycling areas, you know, uh, and Innovate UK has a lot of challenges uh, and, and funds that we um, provide around things like smart, sustainable plastic packaging and uh, and the foundation industries and other areas that, that are all driving to to understand exactly that, what parts of the materials supply chain we want to be leaders in. Um, but I think it's um, it, it's, a, it's a really difficult question to, to kind of pinpoint from where we sat now, where do we want to be in 30 years' time and what, what industries do we want to be leading in uh, or, or what industries do we, you know, are we happy to, to to buy or, or collaborate with with other you know friendly partners with uh, Neil G, do you have anything to add on that? I I think what what's been said there is is really true. I mean, clearly the the challenges that we face are global challenges, and the the solutions need to be global solutions. We don't in the UK have the raw mineral reserves in in most cases. There are some exceptions. You might think of Cornish lithium or something, but we don't necessarily have those raw material resources. We have, we have some elements of supply chain and processing, but not necessarily all of them. And we, we have to be realistic about what that ambition could be. But we do have a really great materials science capability and materials engineering capability across that life cycle. So I think we need to think very carefully about where does it give us most economic benefit in the UK to invest our, our effort and our funding? And where can we make the biggest impact to the solution of the problems? And we need, therefore, to have a clear strategy that's kind of holistic across the whole of the, the materials value chain to, to look at the, the areas where we think the UK can contribute most clearly. And I think there's some way to go to, to get that vision for the UK. 
the, the the aspect one aspect of that is the you know if we if is the total kind of carbon emissions from the UK or carbon equivalent emissions from the UK you know if we if we could switch off all our territorial emissions tomorrow and not change anything we were doing just switch the emissions off uh, and stop that um, you kind of refer to it in the question we, we we'd still have around about 300 megatons or something of, of emissions that are embodied in materials that we bring in and and consume and so that's a that's a big challenge because if we just stop doing everything, we're bringing in emissions and, and materials from countries that are that don't have the kind of renewable um, energy sources that we do have in the UK. So, you know, there is a there is a real opportunity, I think, for the UK to to just kind of step back from that and say, okay, we've got we we've built kind of renewable energy sources in the UK. Now, what are the industries that we really need to have to minimize our carbon emissions in, in that materials and manufacturing area? Um, because, you know, I, I, composites is, is, a, is a really good example. You know, carbon fiber, if, if all the pressure vessels that we say we're going to produce for hydrogen um, and, and all of the carbon fiber that we need to, to develop bigger and bigger wind farms, um, there's not enough carbon fiber on the planet. And the carbon fiber plants that are likely to be investing are around about, you know, mainly in China now. I mean, there are others in Germany and Japan and a few other places. But if we start you know, importing more and more from China that's based on, you know, coal-based and, and fossil fuel-based energy, then we're bringing in more and more embodied carbon. And it doesn't really solve the problem. So... Is there an opportunity there for us to have carbon fiber in the UK and you develop it on a low carbon based carbon fiber? Yeah, you know, potentially yes. So I think there's, you know, we need to think about not just you know, the material need for the energy transition, but also the material need for the for the total um, emissions of the UK, so that we can achieve that net zero. And of course, accounting for that is always one of the biggest headaches, I think, because everyone always disagrees about how to do it. Um, we're, we're getting towards the end. I just want to ask both of you briefly about uh, obstacles. Like, what are the biggest obstacles in the UK specifically? Is it a lack of? Is it a lack of will? Is it a lack of money? Is it a lack of regulation? All of the above. Like, where where are the biggest obstacles? You know, there's a huge shift. There's a lot of I see a lot of willingness to make it happen as quickly as possible, given the constraints, but. What what is the bottleneck? What's the limiting factor? Um, perhaps briefly from both of you, uh, Neil W. First. Well, that's a really difficult question. I, I think you know, there's uh, for me, it's just the, the scale of the challenge. I, I don't, I you know, there's a lot of money you know being invested in this, both by business and by by government. Uh, I think the the challenge is, as I said, you know, earlier, there's you know, wherever you turn, there's there's a new challenge related to this. Um, so it's for me, it's the scale of it, and, and not just the scale, but also the the pace with which we need to do it. Um, I think the the you know the, the the bottlenecks partially are, you know, do we have you know do we have all the skills that we need to deploy? Do we need do we have all of the funding that we need to deploy? Um, do we have the awareness across all levels of society? Um, and I, I think they're you know. They're, they're really grand bottlenecks. I don't know that <laughs> there are some big, big things to change if we <laughs> want to succeed. 
Um, Neil G, obstacles, what do you see? Yeah, pace and scale is clearly a huge issue. I think we also need to be very realistic about what we mean by materials technology and the kind of materials technologies we need to develop. I think there's always a perception that we need to develop a new, entirely novel um, kind of material system. And that's the kind of thing we ought to be doing in research and technology. I think we have to consider more realistically what's going to make a contribution in the timescale in which we need to affect the change. And in many cases, that's not the discovery of a new material system. It's investing in the the optimization of existing systems or understanding their performance or optimizing their um, their processing and properties. And I think we need to value that equally highly for the contribution it can make um, and, and sort of bear that in mind when we make funding decisions. And I think the other one I'd, I'd just raise is the skills challenge. Um, I think we need, we've, we've talked about communication. I think we need to be able to communicate and inspire people to come into engineering, whether it's engineering in the wider sense or materials engineering, because that is the way to deliver the solutions. That is where the, the problems are going to be solved. And we need people to to enter into the profession and to, to, to be active as scientists and engineers to help develop the technologies that we need. Well, we will be covering many of those other complicated issues on other podcasts or other episodes in this podcast series. But we've reached the end of our time now. So thank you very much to both the Neils, Neil Whitten and Neil Glover. Um, thank you to the audience for listening in. There's clearly some big thinking to be done on this topic. So uh, the only, but you know, we can see these big challenges, but the only way to make progress is to get started. So we've got a str- strong foundation to work from, as we've heard. And now it's just a case of getting on with it. Uh, so do look out for the next podcast in this IOM3 series. And uh, in the meantime, from all of us here, goodbye. Thanks once again to the sponsors of this episode, Bristol Composites Institute and British Glass. You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Material Change Resourcing Net Zero digital series by going to materialchange.iom3.org or simply searching for Material Change on social media or Google. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on social to check out more of our podcast collaborations.